Welcome, everybody, to the Kona Shane Veterinary Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Andy Work. Guys, I got a great one for you. I'm here with my friend, Dr. Emily Tincher. She is the Senior Director of Pet Health at Nationwide. She is a good friend of mine. I have known her for years and years and years. She's been on the podcast many times talking about many different subjects. We are here today talking about spectrum of care and uh, what she calls the skill of clinical empathy. Uh, Emily is doing a ton of lecturing on exam room communication. I geek out about exam room communication, how we talk to pet owners, uh, how we we communicate recommendations, things like that. She's got a lot of data and is really doing some neat stuff. And so I'm always uh, interested in what she's doing, keeping up with her. And so I wanted to get her in and said, hey, I'm hearing you talk about skill of clinical clinical empathy. And you're talking about it in very specific, very sort of objective ways. I, I want you to break this thing apart for me. What are you talking about? And what does it look like in the exam room? And so she jumps right into it. This is a great episode. There's a lot of really useful tips and pearls, a lot of how do you say it type uh, type phrasings. Anyway, I just, I, I really like this a lot. So guys, I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I did. This episode is brought to you ad-free by Nationwide. Guys, let's get into it. This is your show, we're glad you're here, we want to help you in your veterinary career, welcome to the Cone of Shame with Dr. Andy Rourke. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Emily Tincher, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me back. It's great to see you. Oh, always. Oh, I, I, I love seeing you. I love having you on the podcast. We've had some really wonderful discussions over the last couple of years, and uh, and I always enjoy it. You are one of the one of the main people that I talk about, like a communication exam room communication stuff with. I think you and I are uh, are really enjoying looking at spectrum of care stuff and the way that we're sort of changing the way that we talk to pet owners. And and I I, I always appreciate your insight on on keeping care accessible and affordable. And so I I I'm back today to kind of dig into some stuff that you're doing. And again, I I think you've I just let me pause for a second and just say, I, I really think you've done amazing work as far as making spectrum of care into something that actually has specifics that people can talk about. I think a lot of times this is a term that's a lot of hand waving and a lot of, you know, uh, we, we're saying this term, but the what you're thinking, what I'm thinking are radically different. And I, I think you've done really good work as far as laying down some empiric data and case studies and analyses that actually help us say, when we talk about spectrum of care, this exactly is what we're talking about. And this is the difference in outcomes that we're talking about. And this is the difference in hard dollar prices that we're talking about. And that's the stuff that I really geek out on. I think otherwise it kind of gets lost in, like I said, a, a lot of hand waving and, and sort of, uh, you know, uh, flower flowery language but no everyone goes away feeling good but none of them actually agreed to anything or even really got the same the same experience from the conversation so i, th I think you do that really well so let me just pause and, and say thank you for that well, thank you that's very kind of you i think part of what has helped us to really um gather around a common definition for spectrum of care and then say, okay, we're not going to just advocate for, to your point, hand-waving and saying we have to do mm -hmm. things better. We have to provide more care to more pets and, and we think about how we do that. I think a big part of how we've gotten there at Nationwide is working really closely with others that are, are leading in the space and we'll get a chance to talk about some of them today too. Yeah. Uh, well, good. That's awesome. Well, I, so you're, you're out doing, you're doing a lot of lectures. You're talking a lot about exam room communication. You've got a uh, nationwide last time you were on, we were talking about uh, a survey of pet owners and coming back and behaviors that they liked and didn't like and kind of um, some, some communication feedback uh, that pet owners were giving on vet medicine. And we talked about that last time. And so you've been doing a lot of lecturing on that. I wanted to drill in specifically to a, a concept that you've been bringing up called the skill of clinical empathy. 
And I talk a lot about empathizing with pet owners, but you've really kind of, as you do, drilled this, drilled this down into, into some hard nuts and bolts, uh, you know, data. And so I, I want to, I want to get you to unpack that idea a little bit here today, because, you know, I, I know that so many of us spend, spend time in the exam room and we're talking to pet owners a lot. What do you mean when you talk about the skill of clinical empathy? Yeah, thanks for the question. And um, I love talking about exam room communications, but especially with you, because I, I know we just could like geek out about it and get very excited um, because it's such a great way that we can help people by helping their pets and and keep that whole pet family together. So um, just thanks again for having me back. So excited. Oh, sure. um, so what does it mean to, to explore the scale of clinical empathy? I'm going to start with a case and we'll come back to it a couple of times throughout, just because I think I know I learned best through storytelling. And I want us to think about a type of case that whether we're in general practice or emergency medicine, where I've spent most of my time, we've probably seen. And that is uh, a condition uh, called pyometra. So um, pyometra, what pops into your brain? Any sayings uh, when I say the diagnosis oh, yeah. of pyometra? Sure, the sun never sets on a pyometra. You mentioned that to me before. It's like yeah. I don't. I, they must say to every vet school because we we did not go to the same vet school, and I knew exactly what you were talking about when you brought that up. Yeah, the so that saying of never let the sun set on a pyometra is like lore in uh, veterinary medicine, yeah. and uh, we'll talk a little bit about maybe why we we might want to rethink that phrase, um, using that phrase, but that that is ingrained inside of our brains, and so I think some of the other things that kind of pop into our head when we make that diagnosis. Um, what are what are some of the judgments that you may have seen or experienced um, when we see a, a pet, an older pet often um, diagnosed, dog, we'll say, diagnosed with pyometra? Oh, I mean, you mean like the bad, like the bad judgments? Some of the, you're bad, like, the, the bad, like, the negative things that might pop into our heads. Well, you wonder why this uh, wholly preventable condition is occurring, right? Like, and, and, and you have judgments around that. I, I would guess that, that I, that, that pops into my mind of, you can't help, but like, you feel, you can feel sorry for someone and also be like, why? This <laughs> we could have, uh, we could have potentially averted this. So yeah, so pyometra, infection of the uterus, we know uh, from our time in vet school and beyond that the diagnosis uh, is more common in dogs, especially, we'll, we'll limit to that to, and to leave out cats, uh, more common in dogs as they get older, especially um, mm -hmm. over the age of eight. And I know a lot of us, um, the first thing that pops into our head is like, why is this happening? This is an expensive, life-threatening problem that we have often feel like we've educated pet owners about, um, and the, the the prophylactic thing that could have been done um, is spaying the dog. So, okay, so we're going to come back to that, but at least we've set the table with this is the case that we're gonna that we're gonna use um, and think about as we consider the skill of clinical empathy and put it in the setting of spectrum of care. Okay. So just to get us all back on the same page of what what does the spectrum of care mean? Uh, it really, there's the, the published definition of a spectrum of care is to provide a range of diagnostic and treatment options from basic to advanced that uh, meet pet family goals, values, and resources. Of course, including financial, but also uh, there are other things that are included like time and um, 
just ability to bring the pet into the practice. So sure. lots of things to think about there. That's our definition, published definition. Um, we, we know that there are multiple options for how a pet can be treated when we consider evidence-based medicine. So how do we actually practice a spectrum of care? First, we identify those pet family goals, values, and resources. And uh, we, we talked about last time a little bit of the research that we've done at Nationwide with uh, previously my genomics advisors, um, now rebranded. Uh, we can put up a, a link to some information about that, but we'll be releasing a tool later this year to help shortcut um, identifying those pet family goals and, and resources. So we've done that. Let's say we've, we've had a little bit of an initial conversation, uh, and then now we need to consider what the pet is presenting with in front of us. In this case, let's say Pyometra, we'll consider what are the evidence-based medicine options out there. So what are, what are the outcomes uh, that might happen if we choose different treatment options across that range from basic to advanced? We'll come back to that in a second. But then once we've identified those, the pet family-centered communication of just providing those options in a non-judgmental way is the next step. So having that conversation and breaking it down to what are the skills that it takes to, uh, to really present those options and, and make sure that a pet family understands what the pros and cons are of some of the options across that spectrum is a skill we can all learn. And it's a skill that, um, you know, if I said to you, we, we have a superpower that we can harness in the exam room, something that decreases um, medical board complaints, something that uh, improves medical outcomes, and something that uh, actually makes, in human medicine at least, um, actually makes physicians happier at their jobs um, and more, more likely to stay in their role. Wouldn't we all want to practice that skill? <laughs> That's yeah, clinical you know, empathy. I, yeah, sure. That's clinical. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, it's so, one of those things. It's it's not it's not always easy to pick that weight up. Do you agree with that? I have to get up for empathizing sometimes. I'm just being honest. When when I'm at my best and I'm well rested and I've had some calories, uh, I uh, you know I am all about it. I'm like, let's go in and see where these people are coming from. I I think. I think the default for a lot of us have to get tired or if you see case after case after case after case, it's, um, it's an extra, it's an extra weight that we pick up. You know what I mean? I think it's easier sometimes to be cynical and judgmental than it is to find empathy. Do you agree with that? I do agree with that. I think, um, and I'd still pick up some relief shifts in ER. So I, I, when I feel myself becoming more cynical, becoming more judgmental, uh, of letting those thoughts creep in as I'm working with a pet mm -hmm. family. I know for me, self-awareness wise, for me, I need to take a step back and say, Emily, are you doing too, are you, have you said yes to too many things? Have you eaten lunch <laughs> today? Are you taking yeah. care of yourself? Um, because you can't take care of others if you, if you don't take care of yourself. Um, I think what's really interesting about, and I, I want to really break down like how do you practice the scale of clinical empathy in a moment but what's really interesting about um, considering what's you know the the best possible outcome being the one that's the best for the family and i think i've i really enjoyed how i've heard you talk about it before the best possible outcome is the long-term outcome yes for um, building trust for working together and for that pet coming back to see us again 
Right. When we do that, when we really say, okay, what I might choose might not be what they're going to choose, but it might be what's best for the family, the whole, the mm-hmm. pet and the family together. Um, there's some, some mounting evidence that that decreases moral distress um, and actually might help us to feel uh, like it's a little bit easier to pick, to pick that weight up um, if we can rethink in our minds what best care means um, right. and, and what, what that looks like for each individual pet. I really like that a lot. I'm actually midway through writing an article right now about, because I've been thinking a lot about how we measure ourselves as doctors. Okay. And so, so my, my, my thesis that I put forward in, in, in this sort of piece is that, um, we, we all came up in school and we got grades for our work, you know, and we got gold stars and we looked at our GPA and we had these different measurements and we're like, I'm successful because I met this standard. And, and what I would put forward is that I think most of us have standards that we measure ourselves by. And there's reasons that we pick our standards and we pick our standards based on what other people tell us is important mm. or what's easy to measure. You know, what's, what's objective and what simple. we observe from our, what we from observe, our peers yeah. as we talk to each other. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of those measures are not the best measures for making us happy or, or truly bringing across what we want to accomplish. Like, for example, is your measure of your quality as, as a doctor tied to your average client transaction. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't think it is, you know, I, I think that there's, it's not all or none. It's not a linear relationship, but I don't think that you look and say, I saw 32 patients yesterday, which means I am an exceptional doctor. I'm like, I don't think that that's how that works. I like, that's a, that is a metric. It yeah. is part of what we do. It means, yeah. I, I don't know what it, I'm like, I'm not even saying it means you're efficient doctor. I don't know what you're doing in there, but you know what I mean? It, but I do see people grab onto those metrics and they say, aha, this is how I measure myself. And I've, I, I love where you're going with this because my big question to myself has been, what are the measurements that actually really matter? What are the mm-hmm. ones that matter for the pets? And what are the ones that matter for me as a person where I can come out and say, I did a good job today. And if I come out and say, I didn't get a CT scan for that, you know, yeah. abdominal pain dog. And so I'm a failure. So like I'm a bad seemed, doctor. Yeah. That means I'm a bad doctor. And, and like, I know that sounds ridiculous. And I chose an extreme example, but a lot of us live in a microcosm of that, of like, I didn't get that abdominal ultrasound and that would have been the best medicine. And yeah. so I feel like I'm less than, and when I talk about this case to my friends, I may conveniently leave that part out, you know, because I don't want them worried to say, about well, them judging me. An ultrasound. Yeah, that peer-to-peer judgment um, can can be tricky for us. I think um, I, I really like the way that you talked about that. It's, it's what are the metrics that um, that mean something to us? And I think one of the uh, kind of ways that we've been talking about spectrum of care and why it's been so important for us at Nationwide to provide a specific path for doing it, not just saying, um, you know, we, we should provide more care to more pets, is that mm-hmm. we want to rethink some of those metrics of how we assess ourselves and, and how we, um, average client transaction is such a, a great one. Cause I, I remember growing up in my parents' practice and, and just hearing like, if your average client transaction is higher, you're a better doctor. Like that, that that was a fact. Yeah. That was a fact. Um, but but looking at truly what's 
best for the pet and and um in the context of what's going on with the entire pet family sometimes if we focus on that to an extreme uh the pet may never come back and we may we may pay make pet families inadvertently i, I think accidentally but feel ashamed but say yes to us yeah. and then never come back and i think um that's what the skill of clinical empathy um i think really does help us avoid by trying to employing a lot lots of um core communication skills so first we have to understand so so what does it look like literally to employ the skill of clinical empathy what does it look like first you have to understand what the pet family's goals are and what their resources are and we have to do things like ask open-ended questions and we have to be curious and i think if if nothing else i just returned from uh, the veterinary leadership institute's trek our second uh in-person 25 hours of race ce uh event where we kind of talk about a lot of these skills and uh, we employ them all and we we understand what is going on in our brains okay so we've asked open-ended questions we've we've listened ac active listening and reflective listening skills um, then we have to communicate back to the pet family uh, that we do understand um, and so this this is where as a, a field there's some some publications about how empathetic we think that we are and i and i and i totally believe it uh, as veterinarians as technicians but healthcare teams we really do care about the pet families and the pets that we serve uh, but a lot of times and and there's a, a couple of studies that that documented this part we don't actually say it out loud. We don't actually communicate it back. So pet families don't know that. We, we feel it, but they don't know it. And so communicating yeah. and saying out loud think statements like, that sounds hard, or I can't imagine what you're going through. Um, those are the ways that we begin to communicate back and employ this skill of clinical empathy to say, okay, I've, I understand that you're going through something. It might be, it might be stress about um, something that I don't find to be stressful. You're, you're yeah. worried about a, a torn toenail and I'm confident your pet's going to be okay. Um, but there's, it's still stressful. Seeing a lot of blood for a torn toenail is still something that's scary for pets. So I understand it's scary. I promise you that uh, we're going to make Fluffy feel better um, and that that bleeding is going to stop soon. We're going to help with that. Yeah. Um, so communicating that out loud, which um, those couple of studies, um, one of one showed that in as few as seven percent of exam room communications do we actually say it out loud. Uh, another one yeah. was more in the forties, but less than half the time do we say out loud the things that we're thinking inside of our brain that we we can identify with some something in there, something about the stress or the um, the difficulty that a pet family is going through, even if it's small. And then the last right. piece of employing that clinical empathy is, is acting in a different way that says, I've listened to you. I understand that you are stressed or that something, something big or something small might be going on. And I'm going to now change the way that I might have acted accordingly. Right. And for us in an exam room se setting, that often looks like communicating our that range of treatment options or diagnostic or treatment options back to them in a way that reflects the conversation that we just had and yeah. so um for example coming back to our our pyometra uh case example it's a great paper 
uh, published, I think last last year at this point, uh, 2023 is whizzing by, uh, about what some of the treatment options might be across a spectrum of care for pyometra. The lead author was uh, Dr. De Clementi at the ASPCA, and uh, they investigated what does it look like to treat pyometra not necessarily before the sun sets. So like, look at things like, okay, um, what do we do outside of a referral setting? What are the outcomes? So we we know the most advanced option, right, for treating pyometra. It's going to see a board certified surgeon uh, at a specialty referral hospital. And, uh, you know, we'll we'll leave out what the additional diagnostics and things are, but probably a couple of days of hospitalization Mm -hmm. associated with that. Uh, Their research showed that of the pets that had uh, that went forward with treatment that weren't euthanized, um, so treatment primarily being surgical of the the surgery pets, and they over four hundred dogs were included in their retrospective study. There was a ninety seven percent success rate, uh, survival rate of dogs that had surgery in a more like a general practice type setting, which is fantastic. I mean, there are not many things that we have a ninety seven percent. Uh, success rate for a life-threatening condition at. Um, And one of the other things that they noted is that there was no significant difference in outcome for pets that had had a several days long up to a a week long of clinical signs. Um, And so that that idea of um, euthanasia or Mm -hmm. you have to go referral or or nothing else um, and have surgery absolutely tonight, maybe is something that we do need to think about based again on evidence-based medicine, but then communicating that back to the pet family, coming back to that, that skill of clinical empathy and saying, okay, I have, I have listened, I've heard, and, and maybe we have someone who says, I don't wanna take any chances. I want to do absolutely everything that mm-hmm. I can for my um, female dog who has pyometra, uh, great, we have a uh, emergency referral hospital. We're going to send you down the road and and go yep. go have that most advanced level care. But know that the cost, in my experience, can be you know from five to eight thousand dollars for that surgery. That's and and hospitalization afterwards. It's not not an inexpensive cost. So to then have the evidence base to then communicate to them and say, but you know what, there there are other options. Um, I want you to know about, and yeah. we can do surgery here. Uh, and unfortunately. It's um, it's pretty late at night, so I, I can't do surgery here tonight. Uh, my staff has to go home. <laughs> but yep. let's talk about the, the risks and the, the pros and cons behind waiting a night, but we can do surgery tomorrow for maybe a thousand dollars maybe um let's get get your pet started on um you know start things like fluids start things like antibiotics and we can perform surgery um tomorrow that now that we have the evidence base and and can talk about some of the risks associated with that but a, a pretty good evidence that that significantly lower cost can still have a great outcome that's a game changer for pets. I mean, yeah. that's that that saves lives in conditions where they it really is a life or death situation, especially when we think about. Uh, there's an, another great article that was um, that is more is really recent, just from I think last month with the main author of Dr. Carolyn Brown, who's um, had a, a couple of great spectrum of care articles in JAVMA now, where they they talk about. Um, incorporating multiple different facets into a 
um, quality, family quality of life. And so they, they define that as um, bringing it over from human, human medicine. They define that as their pet factors, their family-based factors, and then there are some, some external things that are kind of beyond either of those that might go into how uh, any decision about the pet's medical choices would fit in. And um, I think what's really interesting about think, putting that framework together the way that they have is that helps us to say, okay, if decisions are that complicated from every pet family that, uh, that we're interacting with, um, some things that they tell us about, some things that they don't, we really mm-hmm. have to stop feeling um, so much guilt if, if they choose something that's not the same as us. Uh, yeah. we, ha- we have to really like embrace, and it gives us the freedom to embrace that um, we we're not we're not the ones with all of all of the decision making power here. Um, and what a what a great um, feeling of um, permi- permission really to to bring the family in and have their values represented um, because they actually are whether whether we think about it that way or not. I, I like I like that a lot. I, I really do. I think that coming back to sort of the, the how we measure ourselves, uh, let, let, let's not kid ourselves. You know, like we we have a. We have an age of empowered patients. Uh, if you look at human care, um, the days of people showing up and, and saying, doctor, what should I do? And then following the doctor's advice, that's for their own health care. Those days, aren't, they're, they're over. It used to very much be that way of when the doctor said, this is what we did, this is what we did. And it's not it's not anymore, right? Like Like patients have very strong opinions about the treatments that they're going to have and how they're going to behave, you know, yeah. and, and what, what they, what they're going to do. And more access to information than they ever have. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. Well, now we're going into the age of artificial intelligence where people can ask questions to, you know, chat GPT and, and get some, some, honestly, a lot of times some pretty solid information if they, you know, if they know how to use the, the, yeah. the AI, but anyway, they're, when we're dealing with empowered people who have strong preferences and they have buying and purchasing power and they believe that they have buying and purchasing power, um, the idea that, that we can control what they do or what path they take, I, I think that that's, you know, that's, it's just obviously false, but also it sets up us up to feel bad about the work that we're doing when we don't have any control over the outcome, really. We absolutely have influence. Um, we want to have yes. influence and, and um, help pets receive the care that they need. We have it's our it's our role to help educate on what that looks like. Uh, but yeah, without accepting the responsibility for you know many things ultimately that are are far beyond our control. And I back to your your um, what are the metrics that we view ourselves on for success? I think one of the cool things about clinical empathy, and I've I hope they, that we have more research coming in veterinary medicine. There's not a lot right now. If you, for example, uh, look up um, clinical empathy and teaching empathy in human medicine, there are over 1.5 million articles that come up, um, wow. which is not the case no. <laughs> in vet med. Uh, but there are a lot of, we can lean on that. We can say, hey, like, this is, uh, we, we believe in, we're applied scientists. So we believe in choosing treatment and diagnostic options that are backed by evidence and what the outcomes are. We believe in that from communication perspectives too. And if you want to measure yourself as a doctor, even if we simplify everything else, you say, I care, you know, I don't care about 
uh, fewer malpractice claims. None of us would say that, right? That sounds right. incredibly scary. If you say, I just want to focus on better patient outcomes, the interesting thing is that clinical empathy has been linked to that. So in human medicine, for example, um, patients that are under the care of a physician that actively employs the skill of clinical empathy, um, diabetic patients, for example, have better controlled diabetes statistically um, than those that don't employ the skill of clinical empathy. Mm -hmm. Uh, It just helps the idea that we communicate in a way that pet families know that we that we care and that we're taking into account what they've got going on it makes them more likely to to trust us uh is, yeah, is what i see from that yeah which is cool oh i completely agree and like so much of our job is about trust and 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 buy-in yeah. and if pet owners trust us and if they buy into the plan we're going to get better outcomes than if they don't trust us and they're not bought in this plan uh yeah. that's like that's so commonsensical, but I love to see I, I love to see it backed up, and and I love it when people pick that up and say, well, if that's true, how do I adjust my behavior? Yeah. It, Emily, what are your? Do you have some uh, favorite resources if people are sort of picking this up and going, oh, I would love to dig more into this? Do you have Do you have favorites that uh, that I could put forward? I do, and I also want to mention one final thing because I think sometimes the word empathy to your to your point of it it can feel heavy sometimes the word empathy if we don't think about um specific specifically how we're going to employ it can have some tricky connotations and so what i I just want to mention what i'm not advocating for so some one specific kind of empathy personal distress empathy where we literally take on the emotions of others uh, especially of of the clients that we're talking to in the exam room that is that's dangerous. So we, we do have to we have to set up boundaries, and we need we need to be able to um, display cognitive or perspective taking empathy, where we can see and, and think about what they might be going through, but without crossing over to personal distress empathy, which is literally feeling it all day, every day. Um, so just want to make sure I make that really clear. That's such a great call not out. the same. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, it, we we see that we see that a lot in burnout in in technicians in in doctors. You know, just you you can't carry emotional burden after emotional burden after emotional burden. But I, I do. I know some people who who say, well, that that means that you can't empathize. Oh, well, you absolutely can empathize with the experience that they're having without putting it on yourself and feeling it. I think that's great. Without carrying so, yeah. it. So, yeah. Yeah. So, exactly. Resources. Some, some favorite got? resources. So I mentioned a couple. Uh, so I want to make sure we link to the the articles um, that I mentioned that Dr. Dr. Brown wrote, for example, which mm-hmm. is a, a new one. Um, and then I will send you a couple others maybe for the yeah. show notes that talk about um, just a, there's a great review article that talks about uh, the benefits of clinical empathy as a skill, again, primarily in human medicine, because we don't have as much research that we can lean on in veterinary medicine, but that just kind of lays out the incredible case for what, like, is this something really I need to invest my time in? This kind of thing that sounds like a soft skill of yeah. of clinical empathy. Um, no, it's a, it's a crucial skill. It It is a an absolute superpower that our whole team can harness. Uh, and I would say, you know, if, if um, a, a small plug for the Veterinary Leadership Institute, of which I'm on the board, that if you're interested in in sending a, a team member to come and kind of work on these skills and practice them in an experiential learning setting, 
Uh, we have two two different on-site events that we host, but the one for vet healthcare teams out in practice primarily is is our Trek event. Sounds great. Well, cool. I'll put links to all that stuff uh, and uh, I'll get some nice links from you and I'll put all that stuff in the show notes so everybody can have it. Emily, thank you so much for being here. Guys, thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I do and I will talk to you soon. And that is our episode. That's what I got for you guys. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something out of it. Thanks to Emily. Thanks to Nationwide again for making this uh, episode possible ad-free. Guys, be well. Take care. I will talk to you again soon.